Have any of you ever heard of a singer from the 60s named Oscar Brown Jr.? Good, I'm not the only one. I read about him this week. I guess he had a song where the lyrics were supposed to be sung by a snake. The snake was out in the snow, in the cold, freezing. And in the song, the, the snake would say this. As a woman happened to walk by, take me in, tender woman. And as you listen to the song, what's going on is he's trying to talk her into, hey, take me into your house, let me sit by the fire, warm up. And she said, but you're a poisonous snake. You'll bite me. He says, no, if you help me, I promise that I won't. So, so she caves, she, she takes him in, he thaws out, and just as she gets comfortable for the evening, sure enough, he bites and and she looks at him dejectedly and and she said why did you bite me you said you would not bite me and his answer in the song was you knew I was a snake when you took me in Michelle Hammond wrote a book called the genius of temptation where she used that song as a launch point to ask us a tough question We've been around the block enough times to know a thing or two about Satan, his wicked, evil design to destroy our lives and, and rage against God. So why? Why do we continue to let him in, to listen to his tempting words? Maybe you've found yourself in that place this week, and maybe you're thinking about it now and saying, why? I knew better. I knew better. Well, I come today with good news. There's good news in the battle against the tempter and temptation. On Veterans Day weekend, I, I think of it in terms of victory behind enemy lines. As our representative, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, I, I think of him as, as special ops coming down here and and achieving victory where those before him had failed in a battle against the tempter. Who had failed before him? I think of our first representative, Adam, in whom we find death, right? And many have pointed out the contrast between the two, two battles. Adam was in a garden where he had everything he, he needed at his disposal. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is in the desert fasting. Adam failed where victory should have been achieved based on everything he had around him. Our Savior overcame in the harshest of situations. You could contrast him with the, the nation of Israel. Forty years in the wilderness due to what? Unfaithfulness to God. Here is Jesus, our Savior, faithful after 40 days of fasting. He, he, he achieved a victory that we can share in. Through faith in him. But I also like to think of it as though he brought back some reconnaissance from behind enemy lines so that the next time you and I face the same tempter, we're armed and prepared based on what he teaches us. So, with that in mind, I want us to jump into Matthew chapter 4. In this first section, I'm just going to call the stage is set. I want you to look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. 
as Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So let me go back to phrase one. Jesus was led up by who? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the one who had just come upon him at his baptism, right? You talk about a high moment where the Father speaks those words of approval over his Son, the Holy Spirit comes down, and now the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Why? Why? Well, I believe at least part of what's going on here is this is going to provide you and I one more proof that Jesus is the Messiah King, right? God knows He is, this God the Father, Jesus the Son knows He is, but Matthew's showing his readers this is the Messiah King. He will overcome where Adam failed, and he's been laying out his case all through this book so far, right? If you've been with us, Matthew chapter 1, he's fully God and fully man. Chapter 2, he is worthy of worship. As we saw those wise men travel the world and, and bow at the feet of a toddler. Chapter 3, we heard the father speak those words of approval at the baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And today we're going to see him overcome the enemy of our souls. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days, and 40 nights, he was hungry. That is a huge understatement in my mind. Did you, did you read the time frame? Yes. 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah, he was hungry. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. He feels that hunger just as you or I would. And it's in that context that the showdown begins. And as we go through the temptations, I want to point out that many have pointed out well, there are similarities between these three temptations toward Jesus and the temptations thrown at Adam and Eve in the garden. That's a worthy study I'd encourage you to look at. Many have also looked at 1 John 2.16 and said, you see all of these in these temptations. Remember, John wrote all that is in the world, the, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. That's a worthy study too, worthy study. But where I want to focus today is I read this this week, something kept jumping out at me. I believe that each of these temptations at its core was an assault on the son's relationship with his father, an attempt by the enemy to get in there, drive a wedge in that relationship. And I don't know that we can appreciate that until we look at Jesus' own words about how much he loved his father. There are many of them in the Gospels, but just to look at how close they are, think of John 5, 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Do you see the, the closeness? John eight twenty eight. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. 
One more that sums it up. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. And I believe sometimes we downplay sin because we think of sin just as this random list of don'ts. And we look at the list and we say, why not? What's the big deal? We forget that at the core of sin is looking at our relationship with God, knowing that he has said, do not go down this path and saying, I choose this over you. I will allow this to become a wedge in my relationship with you. That's the, the most heinous part of sin in my mind. So as we look at this temptation to drive wedge between the son and the father, the first one I'm going to just call a temptation to autonomy. What's autonomy? I'm going to go off on my own, right? I, I would call this a temptation for the son to forget the father. And I would paraphrase it. I would put these, these words in Satan's mouth as a paraphrase. Yes, son of God, eh? Pretty big britches. It's time that you venture out on your own. Why do I say that? Well, go with me into the passage here. Verse 3. It says, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Forty days, forty nights of fasting. Many stones that they say were likely in the shape of the loaves they had in those days. What a temptation. But some of us are saying, hey, what's the big deal? Right? He's been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. He is not only fully God, he's fully man. What's wrong with making some bread? Right? In fact, later he would do that for a crowd of people. Why, why not do it here? What's the big deal? Well, I believe the, the big deal is a few things. Number one, I believe that this suffering, this, this fasting, and the desert test that he is going through, was part of his father's perfect will for him at that moment. Why? Why? Think of verses like Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now think about that. This is a wild statement, right? Had the son of God through all eternity past ever disobeyed against the father? No, but what's it talking about? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He is learning experience as someone, not only fully God, but fully man, your representative and mine. He's learning what it is to obey his father in the face of suffering. Why in this case? Among other things, so he could be your sympathetic high priest. When you suffer, when you face temptation, we know that from Hebrews 4, right? Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see what I'm talking about? It was the Father's will that he experienced that so that he could be merciful when we go 
for help. Now, psalmist said, okay, I appreciate that, but in addition to being fully man, Jesus is fully God. So did he really, does he really know what it is to be tempted? Because if you believe like I do, because he's fully God and fully man, that fully God piece means that he could not sin. Okay, you, it's an interesting conversation, but you say, how's that work? I like what Earl Rodmacher said about those two natures within the one person of Christ. He wrote this. He said, suppose you had a thick iron bar and a thin wire. The bar represents Christ's divine nature and the wire his human nature. The bar cannot be bent, but the wire can. Yet if the wire is fused to the bar, the wire cannot be bent either. That's helpful to me. But some have thrown out, well, if he could not sin, did he really feel the weight of that temptation? I like what William Shedd said on this point. He said, this is not correct any more than it would be correct to say that because an army cannot be conquered, it cannot be attacked. And some have proposed that when it comes to the, the heat and the fire of temptation, Jesus felt it at far greater levels than you or I ever will. Why? Because he held out. What do we all too often do? We cave in earlier in the torture. He held out. He remained pure. He felt the full fury of that temptation. That's how he can be sympathetic. So I thought, wouldn't it be a powerful exercise if you felt led to go out of here and take two days and just fast? And every time you feel the hunger pangs, thank him for the 40 he endured on our behalf in the desert and the battle against the tempter that he faced for you and I. I think we also learn more about the nature of this temptation from Jesus' answer. How did Jesus answer? Verse 4. It is written. That will become a common thread through this passage. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Some have proposed that Jesus may have been doing his quiet time in Deuteronomy leading up to this event because these quotes all come from there. But what's the question at stake for Jesus? Will I live this life solo or in symphony with my father? He went to Deuteronomy 8.3. That, that was talking about the manna, of course, right? Moses looks back and he says, hey, God made you depend on him for that so that you would trust him. Now, we all have legitimate desires and needs in this life, right? Hunger being one of them. I think part of what's at the core of this temptation is, will I pursue my desires apart from the Father or in concert with him? Because I believe it's possible to pursue even legitimate desires. But if we do so in a way that's forgetful of our Father, it becomes sinful. 
beware of forgetfulness of the Father. That was the whole context in Deuteronomy. Listen as Moses warns them later in the same chapter, Deuteronomy 8.11, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments. Verse 13, when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I think there's a warning here. The enemy does not have to get you and I to hate God with a ravenous anger like that, that person we talked about a couple weeks ago that tore pages out of the Bible and, and chewed them and swallowed them. He doesn't have to get us to, to be like that. All he has to do is get us to live in forgetfulness of him. Even as we pursue our legitimate desires. You say, what's the fix? What's the antidote biblically? The antidote to that is to remember your first love. As John tells the church in Revelation. Hold on to your first love as Jesus held on to the Father. Could we say that our hearts reflect the psalmist? Listen to what the psalmist said of God. Psalm 63, 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, better than life, my lips will praise you. Is that how you feel about the Father? Is that how I feel about the Father? He's better than life better than even these legitimate pursuits I find myself in remember temptation to temptation to unbelief to unbelief you sum that up as temptation for the son to doubt to doubt his father maybe like this you don't really believe your father's word do you do you? Watch with me. Verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now Josephus tells us about one part of the temple. We don't know if it was this part, this pinnacle. You get up there and you'd look 450 feet straight down into a valley. Was this the part in mind here? I don't know. I don't like heights. Wherever they were there, they're, they're up there. And, and he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written. Ah, oh, that's a phrase we heard from Jesus. Now we're hearing it from Satan. He's going to quote from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Hey, Jesus, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now just looking on the outside, that sounds like a pretty cool stunt for the Son of God, right? That'd be cool to watch. Cool to be a part of. Would he bite? Verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's from Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What would have been the big deal? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, 
Moses was looking back to Exodus 17. The Israelites were in the wilderness. They were thirsty, right? No water for the people to drink. Chapter 17, verse 2 says, The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And paraphrase, the first time in history, someone said, Hit the rock. God told Moses to hit the rock and I'll provide water for the people. And he did, right? But verse 7 says, He called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, quarreling, testing, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And what was at the, the core of this testing God? What, what does it mean? It says, Because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? I want you to think for a moment of all the things they had already seen in their journey. He had delivered them from Egypt by his mighty right hand, plague after plague after plague. They had passed through the Red Sea. He had provided a pillar to, to lead them. He had already provided them manna and meat. And here... Rather than trusting God and, and humbly taking their need and their request to him, they quarreled with Moses and tested God, saying, Is he among us or not? After all they had seen, they dared doubt his very presence with them. They doubted his promise to provide for them. They, they demanded one more sign to prove that he was really among them. And this is exactly what Jesus would not do. He would not do that. Jesus had heard his father's word at his baptism. Just last week, remember? Matthew three seventeen. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And for Jesus, that was enough. The word of his father was enough. He knew that jumping off the temple would not have been trust. It would have been a foolish game. It's also interesting that Satan left out some important words when he quoted from Psalm 91. You need to be aware of that. Just because someone is speaking words that are in the Bible, you need to ask, are they twisting them, as Russ just said? Are they leaving something out to lead me to a false conclusion? You say... What did he leave out? Well, the psalm says he will command his angels concerning you. Satan said that part. He left this part out to guard you in all your ways. So you say guard who in all their ways. And that's what you find in the rest of the psalm. The person who will be guarded in all their ways, Psalm 91.1, is he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Psalm 91.9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. Psalm 91.14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. The one who would be delivered was the one who trusted the Father, which is exactly what Jesus did. Now bring this back to our lives. I, I, I think of it in the form of a question. Rest or test? Will I be that believer who rests in God's promises in His Word? 
or will be I be the believer that's always out to test God? Oh, I'll believe you. I'll follow if you, you if you just give me one more sign, then 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 I'll really believe you. Then I'll really follow you. I think about this. I think about the fact that the enemy does not have to get you to hate God's word. Just to doubt it. To get a crack in your walk with the Lord. To get you to just keep demanding one more sign. One more sign before I'll really commit. One more sign before I'll really go all in. What's the remedy? Trust his word completely. Now listen, let's be real. Every one of us that walks through this fallen world has moments of doubt or questions, right? <laughs> That's the nature of walking with an infinite God. But what I'm saying is doubt should never be a destination in the life of the believer. If you find yourself with a question, it should be a pit stop along the way that leads to one of two things. I'm going to dive into God's word and find the answer that he's given me. Or I'm going to dive into God's word and see that he has not chosen for whatever reason to fully answer this question. So I'm just going to trust him. Doubt may be a pit stop, but don't stay there. That's what the enemy would love. Trust his word completely. Temptation three. The temptation of betrayal. I believe in this third temptation, we see Satan's attempt to get the son to betray the father. But he knows how much the son loves the father. He was there in eternity past. He saw the relationship. So he's too smart to go in the front door and say, Hey, Jesus, betray your father. So he comes around the back door. I'm going to paraphrase it this way. The Father has made this road in front of you much harder than it has to be. Come here. I'll show you a shortcut to glory. Listen to Satan. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus, the Son of God, has no interest in worshiping Satan. That's not the hook. What's the hook? It's the, the kingdoms, right? The kingdoms without the cross that was part of his Father's will. He was fully God, fully man. We know he felt the weight of that. Look at Gethsemane. As he stared down the weight of the cross. Satan's saying there's an easy way. You just bow down and worship me. I'll give you the kingdoms and their glory. But I believe Jesus held on to a few things. Number one's pretty basic. To worship Satan would be to betray his father. That is something he would never do. Second, I believe Jesus had the long view of things. The long view of things. He would not do what he would later warn his disciples in, in Luke 9. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? He, he would not 
bite on that. And I talk about the long view. I think of Hebrews 12, where we're told in verse 2 to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He had the long view, the joy of obeying his father and providing redemption for you and I, the long view. And I think about the long view. I like what I read from several authors. I think it is poignant. There's a difference between a man or a woman on a mission and a man or a woman just wandering aimlessly through this world. Right, because if we're just wandering aimlessly and a temptation comes along, what's the first response? Usually, why not? What's the big deal? But if we're on a mission and we see that this right here does not line up with that mission, we're more prepared to say no. Think about this, and I think about mission and, and purpose in life. And how our world tells us that real freedom is just to do whatever you feel like, right? But I love what author Tim Keller camped on on this in a couple fronts. He said, think about the fish, the, the fish in the pond. He may catch a glimpse through the surface of the water of a cat or a dog prancing around on the grass and say, boy, I'd love to be out there. What happens the moment that fish is tossed onto the grass he begins gasping and if he remains there he will die why because he's made for the water guess what you and I are made in the image of God we are made to walk in obedience with him that's where true freedom and satisfaction comes he also points out that there are times in life where we willingly say no to things even legitimate things, because we have our eye on a different price. The person who wants to learn to play the piano well will set aside hours to practice that piano and willingly say no to this or that so that they can achieve that goal. Same when we realize our mission is to walk in obedience with the Father. All of a sudden, that temptation comes. We say, no, that does not line up with that, the long view. The final thing I believe he knew is that any second-hand glory that comes to us through Satan's grubby paws pales in comparison to the true glory that comes to those who walk by faith with the Father. You see, Jesus would be glorified on the Father's road. We know that from Philippians 2. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. From Deuteronomy 6, 13. And I think here, as we prepare for those moments of temptation like that, the question is, when they come, are we going to be faithful? Or are we going to be fickle? 
when it's an either-or decision, will I follow the Father or the path of least resistance? Which is the legitimate path to glory? I want to remind you that the enemy will not highlight the fact that you're betraying God in that moment. He doesn't want to put that front and center. He will focus our eyes on the easy road that leads to the betrayal. So what's the antidote? Well, if you haven't been tempted while you're sitting in this room, you will be today and you will be this week. The antidote on this one is before the moment of temptation comes, commit with the Lord's help in the power of the Holy Spirit that when it comes, you will stay on the purpose He has for you. I have good news. I have good news. So we get to verse 11, we see that the Son is still standing. The devil left him. Devil left him. Luke tells us until an opportune time, this would not be the last showdown. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, how many of us, we, we look, we see the victory that our second Adam, our representative, had, and we can even glean some lessons from it, but we're still very aware that the temptation still comes, that it will come today, it will come this week. We know the battle. Listen to these words by Michelle Hammond and see if, if you experience this even this week. She says, temptation will always give you a good reason to disobey God. He will always justify your inner longings. He will always make you believe your own press and be the first to kick you to the curb once you lose your popularity and remind you of all the embarrassing things you've done to get where you are. Yes, he'll lure you to the precipice of destruction push you over the edge and leave you in the arms of condemnation to finish you off. And you won't even know what hits you because his smile is blinding. Is that not how it works? For those of you who know that battle, I close with good news. I'll call this good news the spoils of war. If Jesus went behind enemy lines and won this battle on our behalf, there's some spoils. We have some things as believers in Jesus Christ that Adam did not have in the garden. First, we know full well the cost of sin. Think about it. For Adam and Eve, they had, they had never seen the consequences of sin in the world. But they knew at the moment they did, right? Separation from a God who they had walked in the garden with death. We know that. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's use that to our advantage in our temptation. But not only do we know the cost in our own lives, we know the cost to God. Because He sent our precious Savior to die for that sin, yours and mine. We would do well to remember those two things when the temptation comes this week. Something else we have that Adam did not have. The written word of God. I see a number of you with it open in your pocket. That was Jesus' go-to 
in the battle. It is written. It is written. It is written. He was not playing games with Satan. He's not there. Well, what about this? What about that? Using human reason to argue with the devil. Just bam. It is written. We would do well to follow in his footsteps. I like what Urban Lutzer said on that theme. He said, we hesitate when we should run. And we play when we should fight. At the end of the day, we are deceitful creatures indeed. Don't hesitate with that temptation. Don't play. Pull out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Realize the power within as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, we don't battle with weapons of this world. We have supernatural weapons that pull down strongholds in every argument that holds itself up against God. We know the cost. We have the written word. And finally, not only do we have the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into that desert, we have the victorious Christ himself living within for those moments of temptation. I love what Romans 6, 4 says, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That temptation comes, comes knocking. I like what people said, you open the door, introduce it to Jesus. Your victory's in Him. Listen, I want to close as we ponder those three temptations just asking us to do three things. Remember your first love. Remember that that sin, that temptation, will be to put that thing above your Lord. Even to pursue a legitimate desire independently of Him and forgetfulness of Him would be sin. May we be those people who really believe that His love is better than life. May we be people who will trust his word, who will stop demanding one more sign, one more, one more before I am. No. Trust his word. And three, may we be those people who commit to his purpose in our lives so that when the temptation comes, we can easily discard it in his power and say, nope, that's not where I'm heading. I want to close with a word of promise from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Father, I thank you for our Savior who achieved victory over an enemy that we did not, we could not. Lord, I thank you that through faith in him, we can share in the spoils of that victory in our own battles with temptation. I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not yet come to that Savior, realizing the, the great cost he paid for them on the cross that you would bring them there that they would know there is salvation in his blood and victory in his resurrection may you bring them to that 
point of surrender where they give their lives to you this morning. And for those of us who are believers and know that the enemy continues to attack, may we be wary, may we be prepared. May we not be those who go off on our own, but walk with the Father. May we not be those who give in to unbelief, but, but trust your word. May we not be those wandering aimlessly this week with our eyes locked on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you so much for him, Lord. I pray as we take our offering, it would be from those grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.